Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team discussing the latest in the world of biopharma. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and today I'm joined by... I am Simone Fishburne, editor-in-chief. Lauren Martz, executive director of Biopharma Intelligence. And Steve Osden, Washington editor. On today's podcast... CAR T-cell collaborations, are they the next East-West deal trend? Amgen settlement with the FTC on its Horizon deal. What does it mean for M&A in the biopharma space going forward? And we'll talk about the latest on the NIH director confirmation process. But first, don't miss the chance to pressure test your globalization strategy at the upcoming East-West Biopharma Summit, where BioCentury, Bay Helix, and Insights partner McKinsey and Company are again bringing together a global community of C-level executives to talk about the best models for globalizing biotech value and the evolution of the cross-border landscape. It will be held October 2nd through the 4th in Kendall Square. Go to biocenturyeastwest.com to learn more. All right, first up, a topic that will surely be discussed in depth at the summit. Multinational companies have been increasingly turning to Chinese biotechs for antibody deals, but China's CAR T-cell companies have been on pharma companies' radars since the 2017 deal between Legend and J&J's Janssen unit. There are obvious synergies that make cross-border deals in the space appealing, and yet there have been relatively few deals since that standout partnership. For more on this, let's turn to Lauren, who has been speaking with executives at China CAR-T Plays to learn more. Lauren, how have East-West deals for CAR-Ts evolved since that legend J&J deal six years ago? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. The idea of doing deals in this space isn't new. There has been a slow trickle of deals since that time, since even before the legend uh, J&J deal. But I think the structure and the purpose of those has been changing. Many of the early deals involved a flow of technology and innovation from west to east. This was CAR T-cells developed in the U.S. being licensed to Chinese companies to, to commercialize in China. There were many joint ventures that were formed to do this. Uh, we started after that to see some technology licensing deals, which was sort of moving technology in both directions. And um, I think the Legend J&J deal is widely viewed as the first sort of big cross-border success in CAR T-cells and maybe proof of the viability of uh, sort of a true co-development collaboration in this space. And, and I think it serves as an example of the benefits that both parties can, can get out of this type of deal structure. I think there's a couple of things here, and I really do encourage everybody to look at Lauren's extremely interesting and in-depth story. The legend deal, I think it did a couple of things. In the time between then and now, I think there were always a lot of questions about data integrity and the quality of the experimentation in China. 
And so I think that the success of that product, which is actually Carvicti, obviously, um, which is actually successful globally. It's not sort of a China success story. You pointed to that in the story, Lauren, as one of the, if not the best in class for multiple myeloma. It targets BCMA, so it's innovative and it's selling very well, as I understand. And so I think that that's been very validating to some degree for China biotechs. And, you know, I'm going to keep still plugging back to school. Legend has a market cap of it was about 11 billion a few weeks ago. I'm not sure where it is exactly right now, but it's really climbed in value, uh, largely on the back, I think, of that deal. But I think what's really interesting also in your story is that was still a deal about Legend working with J&J to develop and commercialize that product. The deals that you described, maybe you can go into them in a little bit of detail now, where you've seen Moderna and some other companies coupling is really about coupling innovation with innovation. So it's not just a commercial play, but maybe you can talk a little bit about that from your story, Lauren. Yeah, so there was a very recent deal between Carsgen and Moderna that, that is an example of coupling innovation, sort of taking an adjacent technology from one region and combining it with some of the CAR T-cell innovation that's happening in China. In that case, they're combining the mRNA technology that Moderna is working on to develop some sort of a vaccine with the CAR T cells that that Carson's working on. And the hope is that combining innovations from different regions will maybe help solve some of the big problems that are still existing in the CAR T cell space, in this case, solid tumors. Yeah. And another one that you pointed out was transgene and person gen, which is coupling a CAR T from transgene, which is a European company the non-colytic virus from transgene. And I think, you know, we should think about these like we think about any deal. Like this is just two companies coming together to, you know, couple their technologies and create a better product. But Lauren, you did point to something else in your story, which I do think we should touch on, which is the investigator-initiated trials, because that is actually regionally relevant. Tell us a little bit about the play that China brings with these IITs. Sure. So I think the reason that this opportunity exists, we haven't seen too many companies take advantage of it yet, but the opportunity for the true co-development, co-commercialization, cross-border deal is the fact that there are big translational benefits to doing research in China. And, and the core of that is the IIT pathway. So, you know, you can do IIT studies anywhere, but the regulations in China allow these studies to be started faster. So for a very innovative you know, arguably high risk technology like a CAR T cell or a combination therapy where you're putting together multiple new technologies, being able to get into a few patients very quickly to get a safety signal and to see if it's worth investing in a, in a full phase one trial to get the type of data that regulators will, will actually evaluate in the data package that, that ends up being part of the submission. And using using that really early data to to be able to design a better phase one trial is a really big advantage. And, you know, even more so for a CAR T cell technology or anything that's that's very closely tied to the immune system, because the preclinical models that we have are not that predictive of how it's going to be in, in humans. That's sort of the incentive to partner with a Chinese company for, for many um, international players, because you can take advantage of that translational opportunity. But then what we found when talking to people is there's also a huge opportunity for Chinese companies to to partner with Western companies as well. And that that's really tied to 
the fact that the commercial market in China for CAR T cells at this time, you know, doesn't really compare to what's available in the U.S. because of some ongoing reimbursement issues that haven't been sorted out. I think that um, that what you said about the ability to iterate really quickly in the Chinese market is really important. And I know that it's something that regulators in other places, including in the United States, are looking at. And there's some pressure here to see if changes could or should be made to regulatory regimes in the United States and in Europe to allow faster iteration, particularly for CAR-T. See, that's a really important point. And I just want to add something else from Lauren's story, which is it's become a little bit more stringent the regulation in China on these trials. And that's done two things. One is to give people much more faith in the data integrity because the you know stands a little bit more stringent. It slowed them down a little bit. I think you reported people saying it sort of adds a couple of months, but it's still way more agile than in the US. And so if those regulators can carve that, um, thread that needle rather, um, you know, that, then they can keep that advantage. But I, th- I think that that regulatory angle, as you point, will be very important. Yeah, and we had uh, James Wong of Panacea Venture on the BioCentury show last week. And this is something that he spoke to as well, just the speed with which this technology can be advanced, the speed with which it can get into patients is something that's really attracting Western companies. And he's said that pharma companies are on the ground in China, talking to companies constantly. And he says that, you know, if other companies don't start moving fast, don't take notice of this, uh, they're going to be left behind. And you can catch my conversation with James on our YouTube channel. Lauren, I just want to circle back and ask one question. I mean, it sounds so appealing, and yet there aren't as many deals as you'd expect. What what are the bottlenecks here? I think the main thing that I heard is that there just aren't that many companies that have taken advantage of these clinical benefits yet. There's not that much clinical data, and a lot of partners want to see that data, want to see these innovative technologies going into patients and see if it's worth investing in. So the general consensus was that We'll see more of these deals as more clinical data become available. It's not exactly clear how much data companies are going to need to see. This is a modality where people are looking for curative potential. So, you know, having some high response rates after a month or so in an IIT might not be enough to attract a pharma partner at this time. They may be looking for durability data, but everyone agreed there's the opportunity there. It's not entirely clear when exactly we'll see an uptick in in these types of deals. I think it's something that may come slowly. All right. And and I know we've really dug into this. Um, I'm I'm curious, you you had this great table in your story listing maybe 30 companies in China and their lead products. A lot of them are doing CD19, BCMA. Are there other targets? Is, Is there innovation beyond sort of the obvious? Yeah, this is something that that I've noticed has changed a lot in even just about two years. Um, When I spoke with several Chinese CAR-T cell company CEOs a couple of years ago, I I kept hearing the same thing that everyone needed to go after the established targets and sort of develop me-tos because of investor appetite at that time. When we looked at the data now, it's almost half of the companies are leading 
with a target other than CD19 or BCMA, which means that these are potential global first-in-class products that companies are developing. And, you know, the innovation is really apparent throughout the platforms, not just in the target. The companies are working on allogeneic cell therapies, they're doing safety switches and edits to make these work in solid tumors. So there's definitely been a big drive in innovation in the set of companies that we've gathered. Well, I think that that's just reflecting a maturation there, and that's going to be a global thing we're going to see. Over and over again, we're hearing that the days of incrementalism are gone, and that if you really want to get reimbursed and actually market your product, you're really going to have to differentiate. Yep, and that that really resonates with what James was talking to me about, was this evolution we're seeing in China, China's biotechs rapidly evolving from being very good at developing the me twos to now developing molecules that are best in class and what's next is first in class all right and you may have heard simone mention back to school uh, as legend's name came up if you're curious about back to school and what that means back to school we've been doing it for over 30 years now it's where we take a pressing issue facing the biotech industry, and we dig deep on it. And we just released the Back to School 2023 issue, and it examines the ingredients for building long-term, sustainable, high-value biotech companies. Last week's podcast, we really dug into it, so that's a good starting point. And of course, all the content is up on our website. All right. And as folks were starting to think about getting back to school, their kids back to school, and summer was winding down, the FTC reached an agreement with Amgen that will allow the big biotech's $28 billion acquisition of Horizon to move forward. Steve, you wrote that the FTC blinked in this standoff. How so? Well, it was interesting. I spoke with Michael Carrier, who's an antitrust expert at Rutgers Law School, Um, Dr. Carey is generally very skeptical of arguments made by pharmaceutical companies and in favor of tougher antitrust enforcement. And I also spoke with Dan Troy, the former chief counsel at FDA, who served as general counsel at GSK and other senior positions in the biopharmaceutical industry. What's interesting is they both agreed, and they agreed that the settlement's important and that it says a lot about what's going to happen going forward. Both of them agreed that the FTC would have preferred to prevail in court But as you say, it it blinked, likely because it it wasn't confident that it was going to win. And a settlement was uh, much better for it in the long term than a loss. So the case was the first attempt by the FTC to block a biopharma deal in about 20 years. And it was based on a, a new theory rather than the traditional approach, which involves determining if companies have overlapping products and then either blocking the combination based on that or forcing divestitures, the FTC said that Amgen could hypothetically engage in an anti-competitive behavior, that it could bundle its products and tell, basically tell buyers, you know, you're not going to get a discount on Amgen's products unless you also buy Horizons rather than its competitors. And Amgen said, no, we're we're not going to do that. And um, what's more, we're willing to put in writing, make a formal commitment that we're not going to do it. The FTC initially said, well, we don't believe you or that's not good enough. And and we're going to continue to try to block the deal. 
early signs were that a federal judge was less than enthusiastic about um, the FTC's case, and that's why it decided to settle. The experience is important going forward. Both Carrier and Troy said that the FTC is going to continue to try to block biopharma acquisitions based on um, novel legal theories, not just on, on bundling, but other ideas that it has about anti-competitive nature of acquisitions, including acquisitions of small companies by big companies. But they also agree that this is a departure from antitrust law that most judges are familiar with, and that for the most part, the FTC is probably going to lose in the courts. So what that means is there's going to be friction associated with M&A. FTC is going to oppose them, and companies that are willing to put in the time and the money are likely to win in the end in the courts. Yeah, they totally blinked. I mean, today's about it, right? Um, and I, my understanding from your reporting is that Amgen had said all along, yeah, we won't do that. We'll stipulate to that. And I guess one of my questions is, I understand the FTC said, well, no, we don't believe you. And so I don't really know whether they're now saying, now we've got it in writing, we believe you kind of thing. Going forward, is that something that companies, when they enter such deals, will can preempt, can preemptively just say, you know what, we're not going to do this and try and ward off um, well, FTC interference in this way? Or is, is, it just, is it just a mask? So, so there's a couple of different levels of, of nuance to the answer to that question. Basically, uh, the FTC said that the reason that it was willing to accept Amgen's commitment not to bundle is because Horizons drugs are for rare diseases, they're orphan drugs, and that makes it easier to monitor their compliance. I think that still, and, and not only me, but uh, my carrier and, and Dan Troy both said that they think that commitments not to bundle uh, will become routine in acquisitions like this. And that that's probably a good thing because large companies have used their power to bundle in um, anti-competitive ways in the past. So if that's the outcome from this, I think it's probably moved the ball forward. Well, thanks for that, Steve. We do know that FTC Chair Lena Khan plans to continue to be aggressive here. So we'll be watching and Steve, of course, will be reporting on what's next. Turning to the U.S. Senate, HELP Committee Chair Bernie Sanders has been holding up Monica Bertagnoli's nomination as the new NIH director for weeks now, if not more than that. But an agreement by Regeneron on international pricing of a next-generation COVID-19 monoclonal antibody that it is developing with U.S. government funding has paved the way for a Senate confirmation hearing on President Joe Biden's NIH director nominee. Steve, how did the deal come together? So, uh, yeah, so it has been months. Bernie Sanders said back in June that he wasn't going to allow any confirmation hearings on the administration's candidates for healthcare positions until the administration demonstrated, in his words, that it is going to take a comprehensive approach to reducing the costs of pharmaceuticals. And since he's the chair of the um, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, he has the power to uh, essentially veto any administration nominee. So he held up Bertignoli's confirmation hearing on September the 8th, last Friday. He said, okay, we're going to have the hearing in October. And he said that the trigger for that was a modification to the agreement that 
um, HHS has with Regeneron on the development of monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19. Under the agreement, Regeneron says that the maximum price for a monoclonal antibody that's developed as a result of this agreement with HHS uh, in the United States will not be any higher than what it charges overseas. But there are some kind of nuances to that. It's limited to commercial sales, and um, it's likely that most sales of uh, monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19 are going to be under emergency use authorization, so they wouldn't be covered. The other thing I would say that's really important is that this really doesn't limit Regeneron's ability to generate revenues. It basically says that the U.S. price is the floor. And then when it goes to sell overseas in a commercial market, it can tell customers in Europe, basically, well, sorry, we'd like to give you a discount. We'd like to be able to charge you less than what we're charging the United States, but we just can't because we've got this agreement with the the U.S. government. So it might make people feel better that they're not going to see lower prices in Europe than are happening in the United States, but there's no reason to believe that this is actually going to lead to lower prices in the United States than would have happened in the absence of the agreement. But it will presumably allow Monica Burke-Tignoli to get a confirmation hearing. Bernie Sanders has said that he's going to continue to press NIH to take steps to lower drug prices. He's called for NIH to exercise margin rights and for it to reintroduce the reasonable pricing clauses in licensing agreements with industry. Uh, I think it's unlikely that Dr. Burke-Tignoli is going to agree to that during the confirmation process, but um, we'll see. All right. And and how quickly might they move to get this process going? We'll have a confirmation hearing in early October, and there's no reason why the Senate couldn't vote before the end of the year. On the other hand, there's a lot of politics swirling around COVID and around NIH right now. Um, so, you know, it, it's not going to be a done deal until it's a done deal. We don't really know when it's going to happen. All right. Thanks for that update, Steve. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for Biocentry this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next week here at Biocentry This Week.